Please uh, turn with me to Paul's letter to Philemon. So tonight we will have, um, we will be studying the last portion of this letter of Paul to Philemon. Um, I have uh, had the privilege to preach also on the previous um, portions of the letter in um, several different sermons over the past couple of months, um, but it's very possible that you were uh, not there for all of them or may have forgotten the interim, so I did want to give a brief overview um, of the letter before we hone in on the passages that we will um, be looking at today. So the background of Philemon really is that Paul, the apostle, uh, is writing this letter from prison. Um, Exactly where that prison is, we don't know for certain, um, but it's probably uh, while he is imprisoned um, in Rome. Um, he's writing this letter to Philemon um, almost certainly at this around the same time uh, as he was writing uh, his letter to the church in Colossae. Um, what we now have is the book of uh, Colossians. Um, and in writing to Philemon, he's writing to um, to a man who was in the area of Colossae, uh, he was an important, uh, wealthy man, uh, wealthy enough to have um, at least one slave, probably multiple, um, and wealthy enough to have a large home where he could host a church, uh, as Paul mentions um, in this letter. Um, that was a very normal thing in the time of the early church um, for Christians to gather together in the houses of the more well-to-do uh, members of the church who had the space to host them. There were no church buildings that you could uh, meet in, and they were certainly not going to meet in a pagan temple. Uh, so Philemon was uh, really a pillar um, of that local church. And Paul writes to Philemon about Onesimus, um, a former slave, still technically slave, uh, of Philemon, uh, whose name, uh, per, uh, ironically, uh, means to be useful, um, something which he had certainly not been to Philemon, uh, as he had uh, run away from uh, his master and, from what we can see in this letter, very probably um, stolen uh, from him as well um, on the way out. But Onesimus came to Rome, and it seems that during his time there, uh, he was converted um, by, by Paul, it would seem. Very possible he heard him um, preach um, or was brought in to, to see him in, in prison with some friends, where he obviously can only speculate. Um, but Onesimus was converted and had a fundamentally changed character, uh, as Paul attests to um, earlier in this letter, that he's a, a transformed person. And, and Paul really feels um, this sort of fatherly care um, towards Onesimus as well. He's seen him come to faith, he's seen him grow in the faith, and now he has a real um, pastoral concern for what should happen to him. Um, it's right for for Paul to send him back to Philemon, that's what he's doing, um, but he's writing this letter to make sure that Philemon um, receives um, Onesimus well, and we'll see exactly how Paul um, appeals to Philemon to do that, and what he um, expects from Philemon passage uh, together. Um, tonight we will be seeing how Paul takes a radical, gospel-centered approach to Onesimus, where he appeals 
to Philemon to do the same thing and trust that the work of the Holy Spirit would open Philemon's eyes to his unity in Christ with Onesimus, just as he is united with Paul. Let's just read the entirety of the letter together. Um, it's not long, and it will help get us an overview. This is the word of the Lord our God, infallible, um, inerrant, uh, holy, and beautiful. Verses 1 through 25 of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me, in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And our passage for tonight. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. <laughs> 
Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for your word that you have given to us, that through it we might know about you and know you. Lord, we, we thank you that you preserved this letter that at first glance seems just like a piece of private correspondence that couldn't possibly have um, applicability to all of your people, Lord. But as we look at it and as we study it, we see so many wonderful um, themes of the gospel and how it plays out in our lives. And Lord, we pray that as we study it tonight, that you would open our eyes to that, that you would use it to um, to impact us, Lord, that we would be um, affected by it, that it would not be just information filing into our mind, but that you would work in our hearts to make us more like your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So our first point uh, tonight is a picture of the gospel. Let's just see that in verses 17 uh, through 19a. I will just read that um, again really quick. Uh, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Taking into account the background of who Philemon is, who Onesimus is, and what Onesimus has done to Philemon, um, this, what Paul is asking here, really is a stunning request. Um, the Roman, Greco-Roman world, or really uh, any society throughout history that had slaves and master-slave relation, master-slave relationships, took an extremely harsh view of someone who would escape from slavery. Um, it would not be something where you would simply find the person and bring them back and have a nice reconciliation and keep on working together. There would be severe, intense punishment for the slave. Um, depending on what epoch you're looking at, that it could be different. Um, but uh, really, the slave was oftentimes considered property, and the master could simply do and punish the slave however they wished. Um, possibly even killing um, the slave. So, even just the very uh, just the very act of Paul asking this um, to Philemon's secular or pagan neighbors who had slaves, they would be shocked to hear this um, from Paul. And even though we see from this from this letter that Philemon was a, a faithful, uh, grace-filled Christian. Um, I don't think it's probably um, speculating too far to think that he probably also would have been at least somewhat taken aback by it. Um, This was a real, tangible, serious wrong that was done against him. And uh, Philemon would have been expected to to, uh, take, um, to inflict justice for that and to receive repayment uh, in some kind. But Paul... uh, he pushes even beyond just um, making a simple request that uh, Philemon would accept Onesimus as um, his slave and let him work for him again without any major consequences. Um, he asks uh, Philemon to receive 
this escaped slave, a person from the lowest rung of society who has committed one of the gravest crimes that he could commit, he asks him to treat uh, Onesimus like he would treat Paul. Paul the Apostle of Christ's church. Paul the the aged, uh, imprisoned man who enjoyed the prayers of Christians all throughout uh, the Mediterranean, all around um, the known world at that point in time. Paul the Apostle who could write a letter um, to a church with authoritative, um, as, as authoritative inspired scripture that required uh, absolute obedience from the recipients. Philemon should receive Onesimus like he would receive Paul. Really a a, a stunning um, request. And he also makes a stunning offer. As we looked at before, Onesimus almost certainly stole a not insignificant (laughs) amount of money from Philemon on his way out. Uh, in order for an escaped slave to have, to have made his way from the region around Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey, all the way to the capital city of Rome, there would have been significant funds required uh, for him to have not immediately starved upon his arrival. Um, there would have been significant funds that were required. Um, so there is almost certainly a very large amount of debt that Onesimus owed to Philemon. And Paul offers to pay it off himself. I think we can sometimes forget when we read this, Paul was also not a wealthy man. Paul did not have a villa in Rome or Tarsus somewhere. Um, Paul was not doing something that was a, a lucrative career. Um, he was imprisoned. Uh, and was probably having to expend a great deal of the funds that he did have uh, on just feeding himself and um, and all of the other things that come with being imprisoned in a system that did not uh, provide for prisoners in the way um, that we do in the modern uh, day and age. So Paul, if Paul actually did have to pay this debt, it would have been a significant a significant load um, upon him. Uh, this is not um, something he's just saying as an aside. This is a real uh, risk um, that he's taking. And if you read the rest of the letter, you will see that Paul never he never takes this back. He never um, he never orders Philemon to take Onesimus back and just to forgive his debt. He when we reach the end of the letter, we realize it still really is up to Philemon. Does he take Paul up on this offer uh, for Paul to pay this very large debt um, of Onesimus? So we see a Paul identifies Onesimus with himself. He asks Philemon um, to see Paul when he looks at Onesimus. We see him take Onesimus' debt upon himself. And we see him seal this contract with his signature. He says, I, Paul, 
write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Um, in the Greek, just the amount of unnecessary pronouns that are in that verse is really striking. It's like, it's, it's almost like he's taking Philemon, he's like, I, me, I, I, me. Like, this is not somebody else that he's talking about. He's not talking about on this semester. He's saying, I, Paul, will do it, and I am putting all of my word on the line for this. In other letters, I'm sure you'll know that Paul uh, writes oftentimes um, kind of at the beginning of the ending of the letter, he will take up his pen, write, you know, I, Paul, write this with my own hand, greetings to you and you. Um, as really sort of his signature. But we presume that there was usually somebody else who was writing the letter while Paul dictated it uh, verbally, uh, and then he would write this so that his personal signature, his seal, so to speak, is on the documents. Um, but here, he doesn't do that just to authenticate this letter. He does it to authenticate this real, tangible, incredibly grace-filled offer. And in this offer, Paul gives us a picture of the gospel. A picture of the gospel. Jesus unites us to himself. In a similar way, Paul identifies Onesimus with himself. That unity, that, that identification in the gospel, we are called sons and daughters of God. We are clothed with his righteousness. We are being formed into his image. When, when we stand before the judgment throne of God, it is not us and our, our sins that are seen, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In a real way, God sees Jesus when he looks at us, when this sort of judgment um, scene is, is weighed. And Paul is asking Philemon to do the same thing with Onesimus. Just like Paul takes Onesimus' debt upon himself, Jesus takes our sins upon himself. The vast, infinite debt that we owe the perfect God of heaven, Jesus Christ, has taken upon himself a weight that is um, impossible for us to even begin to imagine. And just like Paul seals this, this contract, this offer with his signature, Jesus sealed his his, uh, his taking of our sins upon himself and his uh, the satisfaction that he paid for our sins by his death on the cross in our place. And this theme of that that Paul is um, that Paul is showing really in this in this appeal for Onesimus, we can see the themes from. Um, his really simultaneous letter to the Colossians, chapter 2. Colossians 
verses 10 through 15. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 15. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in what you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debts that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So at the same time that he writes this wondrous picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us in his death on the cross in Colossians, Paul writes this letter to Philemon, giving a picture of that in his own willingness to sacrifice for honestness and to rescue honestness from the debt that he owed that he could not repay. Now Paul here is he's not comparing himself to Jesus. I think it's important to note that. But he is following Jesus' example. Jesus called us just as he has loved us to love one another. And Paul is putting that into practice here. So from this verse, these verses, do we realize the extent of Jesus' sacrificial love for us? Do we realize the weight, the gravity of the debt that we had that was paid by him? Do we realize the radical difference between our former destination and our current destination? And do we, in the little opportunities that we are given in our life, do we try to follow this example that Jesus sets for us of radical, self-sacrificing love for one another? It's a standard that none of us can possibly live up to. None of us should ever have any expectation of living up to but it's what we are called to strive for. It's what Jesus says will be the sign that people will recognize us um, by as believers, as followers of him. That is a picture of the gospel. Our next point in verses 19b through 20 is our response to the gospel. Let's look at that passage uh, together. He says, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. 
Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So from this passage, I mean, in Paul, it's kind of a cryptic thing that he says. He says, say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. What does he mean by that? We can't be 100% certain, but it certainly seems that Paul was directly involved in Philemon's conversion. Um, From what we uh, know of Paul's journeys, we don't think he ever went to Colossae, Um, but it's very possible that Philemon was in Ephesus while Paul was there and heard him preach and was converted through that. Um, Or he could have been directly converted through the the church planting that Paul uh, launched in that region. Um, Either way, Paul makes it clear that Philemon does owe Paul, and by extension, obviously, Jesus Christ, a debt of gratitude um, for his salvation. And this was a spiritual debt that far surpassed Onesimus' monetary debt. It is comparing the fate, the eternal fate of a human soul with a limited, finite, monetary value. The commentator William Barclay points out um, the the sudden role reversal here, saying, Philemon is turned from creditor to debtor in the space of two verses, and loaded with a debt so large, your very self, that he is under limitless obligation to Paul. And you have to admire Paul's um, skill in constructing an argument here. Um, it's very true. He's t- he is transformed, Philemon, from creditor to debtor, and is placed under a debt where if he were to reject this request of Paul, it would certainly look very poorly um, to the others in that congregation. Um, but Paul here, he's not calling Philemon to complete his salvation by works. We need to be very clear about that. Um, He's not saying, uh, you know, you have been saved through my ministry, um, and because of that, in order to to complete that saving, in order to stay within this saving, to stay um, in this status that I have rescued you to, you need to do this and this and this. You need to um, fulfill this debt that you owe me. Instead, what he's calling Philemon to do is to complete his salvation, um, or is to, sorry, to continue to, to show the fruit of his salvation, to continue to show the fruit of his regeneration. Um, we can see Paul already mentions that there is already fruit in Philemon's life. We look at verses 4 through 7 of this letter again. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints 
have been refreshed through you. So Philemon is not a case of somebody who professed faith in Jesus Christ, but his actions um, put the lie to it. Now we see that Philemon is somebody who was marked by love, who was marked by faith, who refreshed the hearts of the saints, and who encouraged Paul himself. Uh, Philemon is someone who is marked by the fruit of the Spirit. And so Paul here is calling upon him to continue in that, to continue on that path, to show it not just towards um, his brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, but to show it towards his new brother in Christ, um, who was um, formerly of his household and who had wronged him deeply. But in this in this situation, how can Philemon deny Onesimus' forgiveness when he has been forgiven of so much more? That's really the point that, that Paul is driving at here. And it really kind of echoes uh, Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 through 35. Matthew 18, verses 23-35. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him, and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and went and put him in prison, until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So Philemon is being cast here by Paul in the shoes of that servant after he has been forgiven of his enormous 10,000 talent debt. And now he is presented with the servant who owes him a hundred denarii. 
And Paul is asking Philemon, what will you do? Will you do the same thing that this servant in the parable did? Or will you take a different route? Will you forgive as our Lord and Savior commanded you, commanded us to forgive? Will you forgive as you have been forgiven? We also see that Paul does not put this scenario before Philemon. He doesn't put this request before Philemon, not uh, while, while being deeply uncertain about what Philemon's decision will be. Instead, he is confident in Philemon's obedience. He is confident. That's, we find that in verse 21. Confidence of your obedience I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. The rest of this letter, if you look at it from beginning to end, is extremely diplomatic. Uh, and every request that Paul makes to Philemon um, it's really framed as a request, not as a command. Paul could have written a letter to Philemon instructing him on what to do. Um, not giving Philemon the option of a choice, but um, with the, he could have written with the force of his apostlehood behind him and given Philemon an ultimatum which, if refused, would have resulted in Philemon being removed from the church. But that is decidedly not the tact that Paul has taken in this letter. Um, That's why a lot of commentators wrestle with uh, this phrase saying, confident of your obedience. What is obedience doing in a letter that is written um, like this? Some Scholars suggest that the word would be better translated as compliance or acquiescence, basically agreeing with um, Philemon, agreeing with Paul and um, saying, yes, I will do what you would like me to do. Um, But others suggest that, and I think that this is the more compelling argument, that here Paul is not talking about Philemon obeying him, but he is talking about Philemon's obedience to Jesus Christ and to his commands, to his command to forgive 70 times 7. And he is confident that Philemon will remember these commands of Jesus Christ. And just as he has followed them in his love, in his refreshing of the brothers and sisters in the church, he will follow this command in forgiving. How could Paul be confident? This is so so much more of a difficult situation than just being kind to the other people who come to the church in your house or opening up your house in an act of hospitality. It's so much more of a difficult request than um, showing hospitality um, or respect to a a giant of the faith, the father of the church like Paul. 
This is a deeply difficult request. So how could Paul be so confident? The, an- the answer is the Holy Spirit. Paul was confident that the work of the Holy Spirit within Philemon would continue to bear fruit, even as he is confronted with this situation that very likely pushed him to his limits. With the work of the Holy Spirit within Philemon, Paul can expect him to do the right thing. And it's also important to note that Paul doesn't tell Philemon exactly what to do. He asks Philemon to welcome Onesimus as a brother, as Paul himself. But how? He leaves the door open for Philemon. Should Philemon just not punish him and charge the debt to Paul? Should Philemon forgive Onesimus and his debt? Should Philemon forgive Onesimus and his debt and free him so that he can continue to serve with Paul? Paul allows for Philemon to exercise his Christian liberty, his conscience, in his communion with his Lord and Savior. The right thing to do is made clear, but the method uh, for how to do it is left open to the guiding of the Holy Spirit in Philemon's heart. So the question is, are we conscious of the debt of gratitude that we owe? When presented with the same situation as Philemon, and taking into account that debt of gratitude that we owe, would we forgive like we have been forgiven? And are we living the kind of life that reflects the fruit of the Spirit that would lead others to expect us to do the right thing, to have confidence that we would obey what our Lord and Savior commands? All of these things are utterly impossible by our own strength, but by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, as we feed on the means of grace, it is possible as we are made more and more into the image of our Lord and Savior. And finally, in verses 23 through 25, we see a spiritual family in the gospel. Read those verses again. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This part of this letter, or really of any of Paul's letters, is so easy to just skip over quickly. It seems like something that's so far beyond um, our situation, a bunch of names, most of which we know very little about, um, and 
is are in there because it is a real letter and it's historically interesting, but not because it actually has any application for us as believers. But we know differently that every verse, every word, every letter of the Word of God is inspired and is included for our benefit um, as children of God. I think in this passage we see the wonderful unity that is wrought by the gospel in the hearts of people. Humanity was once horribly divided. Ever since Cain and Abel, um, there has been the small but continuous remnants of the people of God throughout the ages, throughout the generations. And there has been the great mass of rebellious humanity. Rebellious humanity that fought against each other, that hated each other, killed each other. After the Tower of Babel split into more and more small, different groups that hated each other and fought each other and killed each other. These tribal instincts of, of people being completely separated and really dehumanizing those who are different from them, who come from a different nation, who speak a different language, who look a different way. Life is treated as a zero-sum game where for our tribe, for our group to do better, the other ones must do worse. The gospel is so radically different. In Jesus Christ, believers from every nation, tribe, and tongue, of every color, of every size, men and women of every class, are made into one people of God. You see Paul also write about that um, wondrously in Galatians chapter 3. Verses 28 through 29. Galatians 3, 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. Such a beautiful unity is brought brought in Jesus Christ. And we see Philemon and Paul in their past lives would probably not have even shaken hands. They were of a different people of different cities um, of very different social classes. They would not have interacted with each other and they would have looked down upon each other. Herod, uh, Paul, as a Pharisee, would have looked down at, on Philemon as an unpious, um, wealth-grubbing individual. Philemon would have looked down upon Paul as an insignificant, hyper-religious figure. But in the gospel, they are brought together in, in mutual love and in partnership, as Paul writes. And now Paul 
can be expected to be welcomed like a family member um, if he comes to Colossae. He can write also with confidence for Philemon to prepare a guest room for him at his home. The same goes for Epaphras and Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke. People from multiple different nations, different regions uh, of the world um, who would have been enemies who are now united as brothers in Christ and are united with Philemon as well, are united with Onesimus as well. It's a beautiful picture of unity that we have here. And we also see the foremost expression of this unity, and that is prayer for one another. Um, We see that the church in Philemon's house is praying for Paul. Paul writes as if he's just assuming, almost certainly correctly, that the church is praying for him. For I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. The church um, there in Philemon's house, almost all of whom have probably never even seen Paul, much less know him personally, are praying for him, for his freedom and safety, for the fruitfulness of his ministry, and for his uh, coming to them, to be with them in person. And we see in this letter that Paul prays for Philemon and the church in his house. In verses 4 and 5, he says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. And then in verse 25, he gives a benediction that also really functions as a prayer. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. So this unity that they now have in the gospel is first and foremost expressed through their faithful prayer for one another. That is something that um, also should apply, and I think often does apply in the present day. When we gather together on Wednesday nights, a prayer meeting, we are praying, yes, for uh, our different brothers and sisters in Christ here in our church, uh, but we're also praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ in other churches here, um, in other churches in different continents, um, for um, wherever they are in the world. We are lifting them up in prayer, and they're doing the same thing for us. This is something that is so foreign um, to the world, yet so uh, wonderfully typical of family of God. It's something that we should all press into more and more, the lifting up of one another in prayer. So this unity that we see here is just as true for you and I as it is for Paul and Philemon. We are no longer divided, but we are united closer than any earthly family. So let us live out the reality of that in our church and towards our brothers and sisters around the world. First and foremost, in forgiveness, as we see here in this wonderful picture that Paul paints of Onesimus and his request to Philemon. Let us do it in hospitality. Let us do it in prayer.
Let's go to the Lord together in prayer right now. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for this word, for the wondrous work you did in, in Paul and in Philemon and Onesimus. For this wonderful picture of your gospel and how the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ transforms the relationships that we have with each other. Lord, we pray that we would carry that with us in the form of, of just deep thankfulness for what you have done for us. And that that would overflow to our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we would be mirrors of what you have done for us to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that we would also show that love and forgiveness to the world as well. That we would win them to you by our love and our faithful proclamation of you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.